Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Shelter in Place is taking a break from making new episodes right now so that we can make this work sustainable and bring you season two. If you'd like to help us with that, you can join our community for as little as $5 a month at shelterinplacepodcast.info. Or maybe you're thinking, hey, I'd like to get emails from Laura. You can sign up for our newsletter there too. And of course, if you're in need of some really great wine, you can always support us by using the code SHELTER at winesforchange.com or brickandmortarwines.com. Today's bonus episode is a combination of two past episodes that I've needed to be reminded of this week. Professionally speaking, Shelter in Place is essentially a startup. We're taking the kinds of risks that most people only have the tolerance for in their 20s. Now that the kids are back in school and our daily work is constantly interrupted, it's easy to justify working all the time. And while there's no getting around the necessity of work, what I need most right now, maybe what you're needing too, is not more work, but rest. Which is not an easy thing right now. The first half of this episode takes us back to March, to those early weeks of quarantine. The second half brings us to May, when it was starting to become clear that nothing was going to change anytime soon. In both instances, I was worn out by life. I needed to stop for a minute so I could reevaluate. So today, I invite you to stop with me. Take a seat or go for a walk and let yourself breathe. Yesterday, I got in the car for the first time in over two weeks. Our family was finally through our 14-day quarantine, we were all healthy, and we finally reached the point where a trip to the grocery store was necessary. So I pulled up my N95 mask, the one I had from the California wildfire season, found some rubber gloves meant for tie-dyeing at my son's canceled birthday party, grabbed a pack of disinfectant wipes, and headed out. But first, I went for a run. One of Oakland's best-kept secrets is that the city is flanked by the hills of the East Bay Park system, over 500 miles of dirt trails that take you through fields, redwood forests, along streams, and offer occasional glimpses of the bay. The nearest trailhead is a five-minute drive from my house. After two weeks inside, I was eager to get out into nature. When I got to the park, there were large signs urging social distancing and explaining exactly what that was. I was glad to see that people seemed to be taking it seriously, giving each other the requisite six feet of distance to keep us all safe. I started my run on one of my favorite trails, one that doesn't see a lot of traffic. But about 10 minutes in, I saw a family hiking up ahead of me, including some older folks. Rather than pass them, I opted to take a trail that split off from the one that I was on. It was a trail that I usually avoided because it's not great for running. It steadily climbs for a good mile or so before you reach the ridge, but on this day, I was happy to take it. And because I'm a bit of a nerd and my writer brain is always searching for metaphors in life, I thought, this is just like life right now. We're having to make different choices, maybe harder ones, but it's good for us. This will make us stronger. Though I don't normally listen to anything when I run, I did yesterday because I've been missing some of my favorite podcasts these past couple of weeks. 
I used to listen when I was driving, but I don't really drive anymore. And no, the irony does not escape me that I'm listening to fewer podcasts in a time when I'm creating my own. As I charged up the hill, I felt good. I was listening to The Happiness Lab, to Lori Santos's excellent interview about meditation with ABC News correspondent Dan Harris. She opened the episode with these words. My inner monologue has been constantly racing, from students and family members I need to check in on, to what's left in my pantry for dinner, to the latest scary statistics, to, oh no, did I just touch my face? My entire brain is like zip, 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 from one stressful thing to another. The continued uncertainty of this awful situation has made it nearly impossible for me to switch my thoughts off. It was a comfort to me to hear these words. Her words captured so perfectly my own experience these past two weeks. But here I was, out on a run, ready to learn from Lori and Dan on how to make it better. I made it most of the way up the hill before I saw another group of hikers. The trail was a single track, and so I decided to turn around rather than pass them, and that was fine. Not surprisingly, the downhill was easier. The metaphor continued to spin. Eventually, this pandemic would peak. We would get through this. But I also know from my many years as an athlete and a coach that the downhill is actually harder on your body than the uphill is. The uphill feels harder, but all of that coasting downhill is what tears up your legs. This observation served the purposes of my metaphor well. We would find out as a world that coasting through life can cause real damage, that there's value to doing the uphill work of living differently. And then, just like that, my toe hooked on a tree root and my euphoria and tidally constructed metaphor came crashing down. I landed hard in the dirt. My chest went tight with panic. Tears jumped to my gaze and I stifled a sob. I twisted my ankle hard. I've had many ankle sprains over the years, and this one felt bad. I'd intentionally avoided people on both ends of the run, and now here I was, out here alone, deep in the woods. I worried that I might not be able to get myself back to the trailhead, which was a good 20-minute run away. Even if I did see someone, it felt irresponsible to ask them to help me, to put an armor on my shoulder and walk me back to my car. I took off my earbuds and sat with the pain. And then I recalled what Dan Harris had just been saying in the moments before I fell. Meditation remaps our brain. Something as simple as following your breath for a few minutes can change your perception of life as you know it. So I closed my eyes and I breathed. Little by little, my focus shifted from my throbbing ankle to my breath. I stood and limped my way forward. I kept breathing. My chest relaxed. My worry faded, and then I looked up. Above me, the treetops towered like a cathedral. The forest was quiet and lovely. I kept breathing, slowly making my way down the hill. Eventually, I reached the bottom, still focusing on each breath, on the beauty around me that, of course, I'd known was there but hadn't fully appreciated before. My ankle still hurt but I was able to walk without limping. I found myself praying spontaneously in gratitude at first, and then for the people in my life whose names popped into my head with each breath. I felt a warmth toward each of them, a connectedness that hasn't felt possible during these days of isolation. I kept breathing, kept praying. 
I felt more grateful to be alive in this world than I had in months. Slowly, gingerly, I began to run. I was experiencing in the space of minutes the journey Dan Harris describes about the past decade of his life. In the Happiness Lab interview I was listening to, Dan tells the story of how he came to meditation. I contacted both Dan and Lori before this episode, and they gave me permission to share with you a bit of their conversation. I hope you'll check out the interview for yourself, too. It's great, especially in these times when good news is so acutely needed. Back in 2004, Dan started having panic attacks after spending a lot of time covering stories in Middle East war zones. But it wasn't until his boss, Peter Jennings, asked Dan to start covering faith and spirituality that things began to change for him. Dan wasn't excited about the assignment. He didn't ascribe to any particular faith or spirituality. Jennings said he needed to do it anyway. It would be good for him. Dan says, It became a great transformative assignment for me. I realized how ignorant I was about issues of faith and spirituality. I made a bunch of friends. I spent a lot of time in mosques and megachurches and Mormon temples. It was fascinating. It didn't lead Dan to religion, but it did introduce him to meditation. Still, he was a skeptic. He says, I had a really bad attitude about meditation. I thought it was for people who were really into aromatherapy and listened to Cat Stevens and used the word namaste with no irony. That's not entirely untrue, by the way. What really changed my mind was the science. There's a ton of science that suggests that meditation can literally rewire your brain. The parts of the brain associated with stress, attention regulation. It's been shown to lower your blood pressure, boost your immune system. Once Dan started meditating daily, his panic attacks stopped. He started gaining respect for the practice and discipline of meditation. His experience was so transformative that he wrote a book about it called 10% Happier. Dan admits, it's not going to solve all of your problems. Nothing is going to solve all of your problems. That's why I called the book 10% Happier. But Dan says that his relationship has changed with that little voice in his head, the one we all have that tells us what we should or shouldn't do, that compares us to others, that makes us feel confident or insecure. He says that his inner weather is balmier now, but that doesn't mean he's living in a state of euphoria. He says, I just think meditation makes you more balanced, more resilient, more thoughtful in the face of life's ups and downs. But for as simple as it is to follow your breath, developing the practice of meditation is hard. It took me years to embrace meditation for myself, and I still feel like I'm not that good at it. Like Dan, I was skeptical about it for a long time. But eventually, the science behind it won me over, especially the findings about how good meditation is for anxiety and depression. I notice an improvement in my mental health when I'm meditating regularly. Dan and Lori's conversation and my experience on the trail brought me back to a book I read a long time ago, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. I reached out to Foster before this episode and got permission to share some of his words with you. Foster wrote Celebration of Discipline in 1978, but his words still feel timely today. His chapter on meditation begins with a Thomas Merton quote, True contemplation is not a psychological trick, but a theological grace. Foster comes from the Quaker tradition, so his chapter on meditation is informed by examples of meditation both in the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament stories about Jesus. 
Though it's not uncommon these days for Western religions to embrace a practice that was pioneered by the Buddha, Foster does make a distinction between the two. He says that Eastern meditation is an attempt to empty the mind. Christian meditation is an attempt to empty the mind in order to fill it. He makes a great case for meditation within Christianity and uses examples from the Bible to back up his argument. I grew up in the church, and my faith has long shaped the way that I experience this world. Almost always, as on the trail yesterday, my experiences of meditation and prayer are intimately connected. Often, one leads to the other. Foster's perspective on why we're so reluctant to meditate and pray intrigues me. He says, Human beings seem to have a perpetual tendency to have somebody else talk to God for them. We are content to have the message secondhand. The history of religion is the story of an almost desperate scramble to have a king, a mediator, a priest, a go-between. In this way, we do not need to go to God ourselves. Such an approach saves us from the need to change. For to be in the presence of God is to change. It is very convenient this way because it gives us the advantage of religious respectability without demanding moral transformation. We do not need to observe the American scene very closely to realize that it is captivated by the religion of the mediator. That is why meditation is so threatening to us. It boldly calls us to enter into the living presence of God for ourselves. It tells us that God is speaking in the continuous present and wants to address us. I think Foster's words could be applied not just to religion, but to our world today, especially in the West. We're desperate not just for a leader who is just, eloquent, and who makes decisions from a place of integrity, but for anyone who can say for us the things we're feeling. We scramble toward witty, wise tweets, to Instagram posts that we think will elevate and enlighten us, to blogs and news sources, and yes, even podcasts, that will make us feel more connected and informed. It's not that any of these things are bad in and of themselves. It's that in all of our hurry to declare what's right or wrong in our world, we all too often neglect our own need to stop, to contemplate, to breathe. It keeps us in a state of perpetual disconnection with ourselves. It robs us of the quietness and endurance of real change. As Dan said, Meditation won't fix all of our problems. Nothing will. But it might help us gain a little perspective on our situation. Maybe during a time in our history when there is so much to feel bad about, it can make us 10% happier. Maybe it'll even usher us into the presence of something holy. I'll be right back after this short break from one of our sponsors. I never really took meditation seriously until my friend Jerry's doctor told him that he needed to start. I was coaching Jerry that year, and while running was beneficial, meditation was life-changing. Today, Jerry is a trained instructor and founder of Imagine Mindfulness, an online wellness program to reduce stress, anxiety, depression, and pain while improving awareness, clarity, and concentration. Use the promo code SHELTER when you register online at imaginemindfulness.com. One of the challenges about starting a daily podcast just a few hours after the idea was conceived 
is that you never really feel like you can get ahead of the game. If I'd had any idea that I would be launching Shelter in Place on March 17th, I would have been doing marketing efforts and mapping out and recording episodes weeks or even months in advance. I would have done fundraising and branding and lining up interviews. But if you've been listening, you know that nothing about this podcast was by the book because life isn't by the book right now. The idea for the podcast was born just a few hours before the podcast itself came into the world. We're figuring out so much as we go along, evolving with the process as life unravels around us. During this crash course in becoming a podcast host and entrepreneur, I've tried to implement things where I could, in between caring for and attempting to educate my three kids, figuring out our new COVID-19 life, and adjusting to the reality of no regular income. I've read and listened to other top podcasters explain exactly how they got into iTunes New and Notable, how they got hundreds of thousands of downloads, and successfully monetized their efforts. Some of them had mapped out six and nine and 12-month lead-ups to the launch of their podcast, which is really great information if you know in advance what you're doing. I've tried to implement the advice that still applies. Much of the good things that have happened here have been through the kindness of strangers, family, and friends. But even so, it's hard to be prepared week to week. Because even if I map out episodes, I'm limited in mapping out life. I don't know what I'm doing next week, let alone next month or next year. All of the plans we had before have been canceled or called into question. I've tried to play catch up, both with life and the podcast, dropping bonus episodes or working late into the night, but every time I get on top of things, something happens and I get behind again. Producing something every day means that I don't always have a lot of time to carefully consider my next move. Sometimes I just have to jump to hope that there's a place to land, or if there isn't, that I won't hurt myself too badly when I fall. This past week, my daily episodes took me to some places I never could have anticipated. I had some weighty conversations because of them. Maybe you did too. Maybe I should have sidestepped those conversations in favor of something lighter, but I've never been very good at compartmentalization. I'm having to accept that this is all part of it, that a daily podcast in real time means a daily reckoning with my own personal struggles, which are sometimes connected to what's going on in the world and sometimes not. I'm an authority on my own story, my own experience at this time, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get it right all the time. I'm going to make some mistakes. I'm going to have some blind spots. And I'm going to have to hope others can extend the same grace that I'm trying to extend to myself, that I'm trying to extend to you. I haven't talked to anyone lately who doesn't feel the need for that grace in their own lives right now. But mostly, I just feel really tired on so many different levels. I'm physically tired from mostly not sleeping great since this all started. I want to be brave enough to have the hard and important conversations in my life, but some days I feel too emotionally exhausted to have them well. No matter how many parenting books I read or how many good moments I have with my kids, our life together still feels like a cycle of disobedience and lost tempers. I'm not as intentional as I want to be, not as thoughtful to my friends as I wish I were. 
As my friend said to me today, this is not who we want to be as a family. I'm tired of getting to the end of every day and feeling like no matter how long or hard I worked, there's something I missed. Some form I didn't file on time, or some email I didn't respond to fast enough, or some other opportunity lost because I didn't have my act together quickly enough. My friend Emily is a therapist and one of the people in this world who I know I can be a mess with. I sent her a Marco Polo video message the other day, just a quick check-in to tell her a bit of what was going on, to ask her to pray for me because I just wasn't feeling up to life right now. I woke up to her message this morning. She said that she knows what I look like on a typical day, and when she sees my face right now, she sees something different. It's the face she sometimes gets after sitting with client after client, knowing that sometimes all you can do in the face of brokenness is sit and listen. And it's painful to sit there knowing how many mistakes have been made in this world and that some of them have been yours. She said, I see your face and it looks like the face of a therapist. I had to laugh at that because the look on my face is where that comparison ends. I know I'm not solving anyone's problems with my daily gift. No lives will be saved by my words or writing. I can offer empathy, but not therapy. Kindness, but not answers. Not the gifts of a professional, but of a friend. Still, what she said next rang true. She said part of the reason it's painful to acknowledge the suffering in others is because it calls forth your own experiences of suffering. It hurts to know that some things are broken beyond repair. To understand that at least in some ways, we're all a part of that. But she said the work is meaningful. It's what she tells herself when she feels like giving up. And then she urged me to care for myself, which she said can mean so many things. But a lot of the time, it just means a time of rest. I thought about her words all morning as I was working, as I was trying once again to catch up after getting behind. I can be very good at working myself ragged, but I am not very good at knowing how to rest. Self-care is not an area where I excel. It's not that I don't have hobbies or that I don't enjoy relaxing. I love massages and lying on the couch reading books and snuggling with Nate and the kids and playing my guitar. Sleep is one of my absolute most favorite things. I just don't allow myself to do those things very often. There's always something or someone needing my attention, some work that needs to be done. I had to think hard about what rest means for me right now, in this time when it's not possible to get a babysitter or go out on a date or splurge for a massage or even sleep in. I had phone calls I needed to return, ones I hadn't had the time or energy to make during this week but that I couldn't put off anymore. But I wanted to take Emily's advice. I wanted to care for myself, to figure out how to rest. So I asked Nate if he'd mind putting the girls down for a nap so I could go for a walk. I figured I could at least get a little exercise while I was making the calls. So I walked up and down the streets of my neighborhood, waving to neighbors as I passed, feeling the sunshine and the warmth of spring. I passed by the neighborhood little library with its free-to-borrow books, past so many neighbors passing along toys or chairs or clothes they no longer needed, free for others to take. Even behind their masks, my neighbors smiled and waved at me. I felt the generosity and kindness in our neighborhood on every street I walked. And before I returned to the work phone calls, I called another good friend, one who I knew was going through a hard time right now, who could use some encouragement. 
And even though neither of us had much good news to share, it did feel like taking care of myself to talk to her, like the kind of rest I need most right now. Because even though we were a thousand miles away and our lives look completely different right now, we were under that same sunny sky, feeling closer to each other than we had in a while. At the end of the conversation, she prayed for me out loud right then and there, and it felt like the gift she meant it to be. When I got back, I still had work to do, but I held first one daughter and then the other while I typed. It wasn't the most efficient way to work, but we were all happier doing it that way. After, the kids started fighting, but in a rare moment of inspiration, I suggested we all go jump on the trampoline. We got that used trampoline off Craigslist three years ago as a way for the two older kids to get out some energy while their baby sister napped all day. It takes up most of our yard, but it's been the best thing we've ever spent money on. It's rare that a day goes by when we don't use it, when that time doesn't end in laughter. The kids had the idea to bring their bouncy donkeys on the trampoline. Within seconds of the kids soaring on their donkeys while I bounced them higher and higher, we were all laughing uncontrollably until our stomachs hurt. I remembered then that the reason we had those donkeys in the first place was that my friend Carly had sent them as a gift many years ago, one that has made me laugh again and again. During the rainy season, we've done bouncy donkey races from the kitchen to the far end of the living room, a sight that will never cease to make me giggle. And then I thought about all of the times Carly had sent me other unexpected gifts over the years, just because. A bumper sticker that said, Honk if I left the car seat on the roof again when we finally resigned ourselves to officially being old and uncool and buying a minivan. She sent a bottle of champagne when I won a literary award. A series of gnomes for my garden for no other reason but to make me laugh. When the kids and I got tired of jumping, we lay on our backs on the trampoline and looked up at the wide blue sky, and I recalled the many moments in the past when I'd taken one baby or another and lay on a blanket in the grass in our backyard, that patch of sky above us, while we looked up in wonder at the passing clouds as we listened to the birds and the wind in the trees. Because that's the thing about sitting with a moment. The hard ones can stir up all kinds of pain and suffering. Sometimes sitting with that hurt is what's needed. But the good moments stir up things too. They unearth past kindnesses, remind us of all of the love and generosity and goodness that exists in the world too. Recently, I had a text exchange with my friend Lynn, a neighbor down the street who's been listening to the podcast and encouraging me all along. We texted back and forth about our parenting struggles, and I thanked her again for being such a champion of the podcast. Earlier in the week, she'd reached out to ask me if she and her husband, Peter, could make a donation. That afternoon, I cut the last three calla lilies from the patch in our backyard and put them in a jar to bring to her and thank her. Only after I had arranged them did I notice the hole in one leaf where a bug had munched through and the earwig I had to chase off from the curve of one smooth white petal. But then I thought, that is just like life, not just now, but always. Even the beautiful stuff isn't perfect. But the flowers were still lovely. The imperfections didn't destroy their beauty. Later that day, Emily sent me a simple three-word text that said, I love you. I told her I loved her too. 
She knows the details of my life lately, all of the daily imperfections I'm dealing with in myself and in this world. Today, she helped me see that those imperfections don't destroy the beauty that's there if we look for it. It's in the sky above us, in the sound of the wind in the trees. It's in our kids' laughter, in the flowers blooming in the yard. It's in the words of encouragement we extend to others, and in the ones they give to us, too. So wherever you are today, however you're feeling two months into sheltering in place, my gift to you is to say to you what Emily said to me. Care for yourself, which can mean so many things. It might mean laughing or calling a friend or letting someone pray for you or just looking at the sky. A lot of time, it just means a time of rest, which isn't always easy to figure out. But I hope you'll give yourself that gift today. I hope you'll tell someone you love them and let them say it back to you. If you've been listening lately, then you might have noticed that we're putting Easter eggs at the end of episodes for those who listen to the end. I hope you're enjoying them. Be sure to stick around for another one today. But first, I want to say a special thank you to a few of our supporters. Connie and Blackwood Designs, thank you for your commitment to making this world a more just and equitable place for all of us. Connie, it's been a joy to work with you over the years and a gift to have you as my friend. Thank you for your continual encouragement, for looking out for me during these challenging times, and for helping me think creatively about the future. Angela Broad, we had one of our very first conversations while running around Kieser Stadium just days after I'd had a miscarriage. Even though we barely knew each other, you spoke to me with the kindness and compassion of a true friend. Since then, you've shown yourself to be that and more through neighborhood runs speaking Spanish, trekking on the trails with screaming toddlers, and phone conversations about racism where you were gracious even though I was awkward. You're a strong woman who models balance, inspires me on and off the road, and is more generous in friendship than I could possibly deserve. Carly and Matt West, you've been there from the start and will always have a special place in our hearts. From being the witnesses at your wedding to moving each other into our first homes to so much shared laughter and tears, we've lived a lot of life together. Carly, you know all of my flaws and have seen me at my worst. Somehow, you continue to love me anyway. Thank you for being a rock of a friend who never tires of making me laugh, who believes in me no matter how many times I fail, and who somehow manages to still be one of the most thoughtful, loyal friends I have, even from half a world away. Finally, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines, who are not only making incredible wines for a great price, but doing so much good in the world. Use the code SHELTER when you order at brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com and get 10% off your order. Get six or more bottles of brick and mortar and get free shipping in California. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll subscribe wherever you listen and share it with a friend. If you listen on iTunes, Stitcher, or another platform that allows you to rate and review, leaving a quick note about what you enjoyed helps others to find us and makes this work possible both now and beyond the pandemic. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode, as well as ways to support the show 
at shelterinplacepodcast.info. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Tamara Kemsley is our associate producer. Nate Davis is our creative director. And Sarah Edgel is our design director. Until next season, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now, if you're still listening, here's a little outtake. Hello. Here there's Gabe and me. I bet you guys have heard about Gabe. I'm a friend of Gabe. And we think, well, it's like kind pretty good of how we can see each other in Zoom, but I would like it better if there would be no COVID-19 and we could, um, we could do it in person. Oh, um, the very annoying thing is that we have to be on the screens talking with my class for almost even an hour, and... Um, We're doing a conversation. There's not, you can't really do stuff like go trick or treat. We'll probably not be able to go trick or treating without masks. Yeah. Because, like, you know how we have to, um, um, hi, my name is Grace, and I'm just going to say, about the coronavirus I kind of don't like about it is that um, when the coronavirus wasn't happening we didn't have to wear um, masks and I'm kind of stressed that like now every time we're around persons we have to we have to um, we have to wear masks and it's kind of annoying. Um, and also, uh, about the podcast, I really like it, especially the funny parts.